Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Memorial Day with a member of a famous American military family, Lucian Truscott IV, a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels. A graduate of West Point, he has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and is currently the publisher of the Lucian Truscott newsletter, at luciantruscott.substack.com. A regular columnist for Salon, we will discuss his latest article at Salon, So Where Were the Good Guys with Guns? Standing Around Doing Jack Bleep as Usual. Now that it has become clear that 19 heavily armed police officers were outside the door of the schoolroom for an hour while inside 19 children and two teachers were methodically slaughtered by the shooter in Uvalde, We'll examine why so much military equipment is transferred to police departments whose officers dress up in full tactical military gear, but when the time comes to do their duty, some would rather harass desperate parents demanding that something be done to save their children. Then, as Putin intensifies his scorched-earth campaign to destroy Ukraine and enslave its people, we'll assess whether over the long term he will survive or whether the NATO countries and the democracies around the world will prevail and remain unified while keeping Ukraine's military supplied with the advanced weapons they need. Joining us is Norman Nymark, a professor and the chair of East European History at Stanford University, and also a senior fellow of the Institute of International Studies, where he has convened the European Forum. He's the author of a number of books, including Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe, Genocide, A World History, and Stalin and the Fate of Europe, the Post-War Struggle for Sovereignty. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lucien Strascott IV, a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels, a graduate of West Point. He has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and is a regular columnist at Salon, where his latest article is, So, Where Were the Good Guys with Guns Standing Around Doing Jack Bleep, as usual? And he has the Lucien Truscott newsletter at luciantruscott.substack.com. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lucien Truscott. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it is just appalling to think that there were 19 heavily armed police officers just outside the door, inside that school in Uvalde, outside the door of a classroom in which 19 uh, students were slaughtered and two teachers were also killed. And this went on for about an hour. There were police outside the building as well, holding back angry parents who were demanding that they go and do something. And instead of rescuing the children, the police pepper sprayed one of the parents, uh, handcuffed another, and were abusive to those that were insisting on either the police doing something or at least letting the parents go and try and rescue their kids. So this is really a black eye, and I must say when I looked at the first press conference that Abbott and the Republican leaders of Texas did along with their, uh, the head of their law enforcement, they were just lying through their teeth and covering their backsides. It was totally despicable. So I'm glad you wrote the piece, and what kind of feedback are you getting? Um, well, I'm getting mostly supportive feedback, but um, you know what this this incident teaches us. It teaches us a couple of things. One is that militarizing the police like we have um, is meaningless. They, you give 
from all this stuff like bulletproof vests and high-powered rifles and sniper rifles. And I even saw almost immediately after the um, the incident in Uvalde, uh, some kind of police armored personnel carrier drove up. You know, it was after the incident was over, but they had one. You know, some somebody there, the, the county or the city of Uvalde, had an armored car. And they've given or, or sold at a great discount all of these military, all this military hardware to these police stations and these police forces. And number one, they don't know how to use it. And then when they're given an opportunity to do it, like in that case, they don't. And um, and I think that the, that the answer was they knew they were facing a guy with a high-powered rifle, and they were afraid they were going to get shot. So it was it basically was was cowardice. You know, you you can't just like these these Republicans are saying you, you can't legislate um, um, evil out of the you know out of existence. You can't legislate courage into these um, into these police forces either. I mean, we found. We saw a perfect example in this case of what the police are good at. They're good at harassing people. They were really good at pushing those parents around outside and pepper spraying them and handcuffing them. They're good at the kinds of at doing traffic stops for missing taillights and hauling people out of cars and, and putting them in handcuffs and saying that you're not under arrest. You're just being detained and, the handcuffs are for your safety as well as mine. It's just all police culture BS, and um, and I don't really know what we can do about it. You know, we've we've made two major decisions in this country that have gone very very bad. One is to allow the sale of high powered military hardware to civilians, and the second is to give the police all, all of this power and all of this uh, uh, military equipment. Uh, you know, when, when I was in the Army and I was trained on the M16, which is the progenitor for all of these AR-15 weapons, it's all of them are built essentially the same. They're all semi-automatic. They're all gas-operated. They're all designed just about the same. Um, it wasn't possible to buy an M16 on the open market in in America, it, it wasn't possible to buy an M16 anywhere. You had to be uh, n- not even the police could get them. Uh, you had to be um, in the military to buy. The, I mean, the military itself had to buy those weapons and issue them to to soldiers. It, it's it's an abomination that they're allowing the the spread of these um, military weapons into. Uh, civilian hands well there was an assault weapons ban that lasted for 10 years and then for reasons which i'm not entirely clear about it was sunsetted and they did the sunset provision was done in order to get their votes to pass it the the republicans said we won't vote for it unless we do a sunset provision and they were gonna they were saying we have to see if it'll work you know well it did work but the other problem with these with this gun um, argument and that is going on in the country is, you can find a fact for it to prove anything. And um, I just read a column this morning, uh, uh, an online column, and and the guy who's pretty smart and he's a uh, sort of a never Trumper Republican said. Um, well, we can come up with some kind of solutions that are reasonable and everything, but we have to follow the facts, you know. And that's a, that's a this sort of creature that all people that are somewhere on the right make when they want to say basically we won't, don't want to do anything because they know they can find facts that'll say, well, we shouldn't do that because it didn't work. He listed a whole bunch of facts about how. Um, the gun bans in England and, and Australia haven't, have not reduced homicides or something like that. It's crazy. 
I mean, they've reduced gun homicides, but they haven't reduced homicides. So that's supposed to mean something, you know. Well, it's just well, this this whole thing is is crazy. Well, welcome to the era, post truth America, and the era of. Uh, alternative facts. And again, I'm speaking with Lucian Truscott IV, a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels, a graduate of West Point. He has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He's currently a regular columnist for Salon, where his latest article is, So Where Were the Good Guys with Guns? Standing Around Doing Jack Bleep as Usual. And he has publishes the Lucian Truscott newsletter at luciantruscott.substack.com. Uh, and, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris has called for the reinstatement of the, the assault weapons ban, although that seems highly unlikely. But your article, uh, So Where Were the Good Guys with Guns Standing Around Doing Jack Bleep as Usual, points out that nearly 10 years ago we had the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School where 20 children and six adults were murdered by an assault rifle wielding a young man, and that... Ten years have passed, and shortly after that horrible incident, Wayne LaPierre, the CEO of the NRA, came up with this uh, excuse, quote, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And uh, he, of course, gave an address at the NRA convention on Friday in Houston, at which former President Trump spoke along with Senator Cruz, President Trump, argued that we shouldn't be giving money to Ukraine, uh, that money instead should be used to, to essentially turn our schools into prisons. And Senator Cruz uh, blamed the shooting on the fact that there were too many doors at the school and that Americans don't go to church enough. So how do we take these people seriously? I mean, Donald Trump could be the next president of the United States. Yeah, but... Um you know, you don't take them seriously. They're just, you know, they, the, you know, they open their mouth and this garbage comes out. But, um, it, you know, they. I went to a, a barbecue last night, and it was about twenty minutes away, or about an hour, half an hour away. And in the car, when we were riding over there, somebody asked me. Um, somebody I was riding with asked me. You know, what do we do about this? What's the solution to this? You know, and I and I I've thought about this. I've been writing about about gun control and guns since the mid '90s, and and I've made I don't know how many a hundred appearances on on cable news shows and radio shows, and I've written I don't know maybe fifty articles um, about this subject about mass shootings and and the availability of uh, the easy availability of guns. Um, I'll go to my grave and I'll still be writing this stuff. Um, and, it, and I just don't see a solution for it that, that, you know, that we can pass. The solution is there is a solution, and that is to ban the sale of semi-automatic weapons. The semi-automatic weapon, the, the weapon that'll fire as fast as you can pull the trigger, is the problem. And the semi-automatic weapon that will accept a large magazine, which is the AR-style or AK-style weapons, they're the ones that will do that. They are the problem. Because you can put so many bullets in there to shoot and then pull the trigger, and you can fire not with any great deal of accuracy, but in a room full of school children, you don't need accuracy. You can fire three rounds a second with one of these guns. You don't need an automatic weapon. You, all you need is one of these semi-automatic weapons. And it, it's, you know, we if we could ban those guns and ban the sale of them and then eventually ban the ownership of them, buy them back, and ban the ownership of them. That would take the that would take the weapon off the uh, out of the equation that's used over and over and over and over again. But um, you know, the, the other thing I wanted to point out, which is really an American phenomenon and it's disgusting, is did you see on the television how many heavily armored clad and heavily armed cops showed up? After this incident, 
Every one of these incidents produces a plethora of cops. There must have been 200 of them in camo and body armor and carrying MC, you know, AR-15s and carrying sniper rifles and all that stuff after the incident. They're standing around in all of that gear. You know, you could go to, once there's been a school shooting and they've killed the, the shooter, you, you can go and attend, if you're a cop, one of those things in a pair of shorts and sneakers. You don't need body armor to show up at a school after they after the shooting is is ended. They just love to put on all that gear and pretend that they're they're soldiers and pretend that they're they're doing something, and they're not doing anything. All they're doing is showing up like all they become is another layer of kind of semi-official spectators. It's it's just it it it. The word for it is obscene. Well, what's particularly obscene, though, is that this military weapon, and you say when you were in the Army, you were trained on the M16, which wasn't available to the public, and now it is. And by the way, on YouTube, you can get the conversion kit that turns an an AR-15 into a fully automatic M16. So, you know, these techno-utopians like Zuckerberg and company and Elon Musk, they ought to be also held to account for allowing that kind of stuff to be available on the internet. But you write in your article, Lysian Truscott, so where were the good guys with guns standing around doing jack bleep as usual, that this particular shooter in Uvalde, he bought two of these AR-15s just after his birthday and 1,600 rounds of ammunition and 50 high-capacity magazines. I mean, is that what he bought? Yes, that's what he bought. And it's thousands of dollars worth of stuff, and there is a great question about how he was able to afford it. I think it's probably going to turn out that he um, grabbed his grandmother's or his parents' credit card and used and used that. Um, you know, in small towns like that, um, if you use your grandparents' or your parents' credit card, they just charge it off, and, you know, they don't ask you for ID or whatever, you know, it's... Anyway, the the you know the I mean that's there are so many I've read various numbers now, but there there were something like forty thousand um, AR-15s in the United States be, um, before the end of the um, uh, assault weapons ban. You know when the when the assault weapons ban was passed in 1994, there were about forty thousand of those weapons around. Now I've read that there are between 20 and 40 million of them. And so, you know, the United States Army doesn't have millions of those weapons. You know, it's got hundreds of thousands of them, but it doesn't have millions of them. I mean, you know, it's crazy that these weapons have proliferated like this. And, you know, it's crazy that they're allowed to be manufactured. I mean, the companies and the factories that are making these things are are basically ought to be treated like factories where they're making um, gunpowder or explosives. They ought to be so highly regulated, and and it, it, you shouldn't be able to just put up four walls in a roof and start making guns. But you can in this country. You know, you can do it. And um, you know, I read something about this guy that um, Daniels that, that owns. The company that made the gun is called Daniel's Defender. Isn't that wonderful? Um, I read something about this guy that he's the president of the Suppressor Society or something. And I think that he makes um, muzzle suppressors too, silencers for these guns. And there's a great movement in the NRA and among these right-wing lunatics that we should have a right to own suppressors and everything. Why? What do they need these things for? What, so they can sneak up on a bad guy? They don't even show up when there's a bad guy in a school killing children. I mean, when I wrote when I when I wrote the headline of that article saying where were the good guys of the guns, I wasn't just referring to the cops because when when Wayne Lapierre said, you know, the only thing that'll stop a bad guy is a good guy with a gun, he wasn't referring to cops. He was referring to common 
gun owners, as, as the people that we ought to rely on to defend us from these terrible people running around with guns, shooting up schools and shopping centers. But, you know, there are plenty of people around in Texas. Texas has a 47% gun ownership. Uh, um, that's the, 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 you know, the number of people that own guns in Texas is 47%. So there are lots of people in Texas with guns who could have put on their body armor because there are lots of people that own body armor too, and run into that school and shot it out with that um, with that uh, kid that had the the gun and was killing those those children. It, it, you know, it didn't have to be just cops. It could have been civilians, but they don't show up. You know, Wayne Lapierre's statement that a good guy with a gun can get a bad guy with a gun is just absolute total right-wing claptrap on its face. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Lucian Truscott, this military rifle that you're familiar with, having served in the Army, it's a very high-velocity round, small-caliber round, but high-velocity, and it's unstable because of the high-velocity, and as soon as it hits something, it starts to spin inside and just rips flesh and bone. It tumbles. It tumbles, tumbles. right. Yeah, and it creates horrendous uh, wounds and the parents of San- yeah. Sandy Hook had to identify their kids who were just blown to pieces and I'm sure the same yeah. thing's going to be happening with the parents in Uvalde so do you think well, they've that- already had to identify the kids with DNA because um, apparently the guy shot a bunch of them in the face and they couldn't tell who was who oh, so that's God. absolutely true that's absolutely the case and that bullet that you're describing you're describing a bullet that was designed to kill human beings. That weapon was designed to kill human beings. It was issued to soldiers uh, during the Vietnam years, and it was and the bullet was designed to, to kill human beings. That's not a hunting weapon. That's not a, a sport shooting weapon. That's and you know when these people buy these guns and go to the firing range, and you know they say, well, I'm a sports shooter. I like to shoot at targets and and improve my aim. They don't put um, circular bullseye targets up at firing ranges anymore. None of these people shoot at bullseyes. They shoot at human silhouette targets. All of them. All of them do. They pretend or train to shoot at human beings. And it's, you know, the, the words that are coming out of my mouth are, I'm describing abject insanity you know a civilian with one of these high-powered military weapons shooting at human silhouette targets is insane there isn't any the only the only human silhouette target i ever saw in my life was on a firing range in the united states army and i was a, a a kid shooter in an nra shooting competition for years before I went to West Point, for years. And I shot at the bullseyes. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a human silhouette target until I got at West Point and they took me out to a firing range and I looked down range from me and I saw the silhouettes of human beings out there. And then I went, oh, I see. The game has changed. You know, I'm not shooting at bullseyes anymore. I'm training to shoot at people. And, and I was in the Army. And training well, to shoot at people is something you ought to do in the army. Right. But um well, let's see, you know, this is crazy. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I thank you very much for joining us on this Memorial Day, Lucian Truscott the fourth. Okay. Well I'm happy to uh, oblige and um thank you for inviting me. And again, Abby, speak with Lucian Truscott. He's a journalist, screenwriter, and author of five best-selling novels, a graduate of West Point. He has covered the wars in Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and is currently a regular columnist for Salon, where his latest article is, So Where Were the Good Guys with Guns? Standing Around Doing Jack Bleep as Usual. And he publishes the Lucian Truscott newsletter at luciantruscott.substack.com. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how, as Putin intensifies his scorched earth campaign to destroy Ukraine and enslave its people, 
we'll assess whether over the long term he will survive or whether the NATO countries and the democracies around the world will prevail and remain unified while keeping Ukraine's military supplied with the advanced weapons they need. There is no one to turn to And what will you do When the blood of America Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Norman Neimark, who is a professor and the chair of East European History at Stanford University and also a senior fellow of the Institute for International Studies, where he has convened the European Forum. He's the author of a number of books, including Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe, Genocide, A World History, and Stalin and the Fate of Europe, the Post-War Struggle for Sovereignty. Welcome to Background Briefing, Norman Neimer. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And there's been a study released just a, a few days ago by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, a U.S.-based think tank, and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, which is based in Canada. And it basically suggests that you could make the case that Russia has violated several articles of the United Nations Genocide Convention. It doesn't say outright that genocide is taking place, but it calls for an investigation, and it certainly suggests that certain yardsticks, if you will, in terms of the Genocide Convention have been met in terms of Russian activities. And then on Friday of last week, President Biden, addressing the graduates at the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, said, not only is Putin trying to take over Ukraine, he is literally trying to wipe out the culture and identity of the Ukrainian people, attacking schools, nurseries, hospitals, museums, with no other purpose than to eliminate a culture. So where do you come down on this, Norman? Where, In terms of genocide, how would you describe what's happening in Ukraine? First of all, let me say that I think the report is um, is most welcome. Uh, it's the first of its kind, uh, quite lengthy uh, description of the various actions that have been taken by the Russians uh, in Ukraine uh, since February 24th. And uh, I think uh, I find the report, you know, very uh, convincing and um, the documentation that's been brought to bear uh, very enlightening. You know, so um, I support the report and how it expresses, I think, carefully that we don't know that genocide has actually taken place yet, but that there is a serious risk of genocide and that the signs, in other words, of uh, genocide are in the air uh, in Ukraine and that it's a, a good and important time, you know, to call attention to those. And I also agree, uh, I should say, with President Biden's remarks uh, where he has essentially called out genocide in Ukraine, you know, for the same purpose. I mean, we don't want it to happen. This is about trying to prevent, you know, further atrocities in Ukraine uh, from happening. And we don't know everything that's happened, and we won't know everything that's happened for for many years. So it, it's it's a good time, I think, to uh, issue this report. It's a good time to make it clear that it's unacceptable uh, that genocide would take place uh, in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, as I said, I support the the report in in its many parts. And one of the parts, as you mentioned, let me just say it quickly, um, is that the number of aspects of uh, Article 2 of the Genocide Convention are being are being violated. Uh, let me let me just uh, note a couple of them. A, killing members of the group. B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. Uh, C, deliberately afflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And all of those and others 
uh, uh, parts of Article 2 we recognize as going on uh, in Ukraine. So let me leave it at that for now. Well, but surely, or could you say, Norman, that this is Putin's war? I mean, he's a dictator. He has absolute control, it would seem. And it does seem that it is his war. And what we know about him is that he has a lot of disdain for Lenin, but a lot of admiration for Stalin. And how much would you say, as, as a student of Stalin, that he is a Stalinist? I mean, he's deporting people from the East. These are the Russian-speaking Ukrainians that he's allegedly liberating from Nazism. He's deporting them into the middle of nowhere. Isn't that something that Stalin did? Oh, yes. I mean, I think that there are a lot of similarities uh, between Putin and Stalin. There are a lot of differences, too. I mean, uh, you know, a scholar would list the similarities and the, and the differences. And among the similarities are the methods uh, by which, um, you know, Putin uh, is working. And that is to say, you know, the blatant lies, um, you know, this um, kind of ideological set of mythologies that he's created um, and, uh, you know, the control of the state in the state media, all of that, uh, you know, was very much a kind of Stalinist method of getting on. You know, he's he's not Stalin in other ways, uh, which is to say, at least not yet. You know, they're not there's not mass murder of Russians. There's not there's not an ex, uh, extensive gulag. Uh, there's not uh, the same kind of, you know, Leninist, Marxist, Stalinist way of thinking about the economy. I mean, uh, Putin is a hyper-capitalist in some ways, you know, someone who uh, himself is worth uh, God knows how many billions, tens of billions of dollars, and, uh, you know, whose clique ruling the, 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 the Kremlin also, you know, is full of people who are on the take and, uh, you know, controlling vast amounts of wealth. So there's a different, you know, there's a different kind of feeling uh, to the ideology uh, under Putin than there is under Stalin. But you're right, there are many similarities. And again, I'm speaking with Norman Nymark, who is a professor and the chair of East European History at Stanford University, and also a senior fellow of the Institute for International Studies, where he has convened the European Forum. He's the author of a number of books, including Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe, Genocide, A World History, and Stalin and the Fate of Europe, The Post-War Struggle for Sovereignty. But under Stalin, the Communist Party controlled the state and controlled the MKVD, and, and Beria was the head of the secret police was supposed to succeed him, or at least hoped to succeed him, and they managed to stop that by executing him. But it's very different under Putin. He's a former KGB officer, and recently the great-granddaughter of, of Nikita Khrushchev, the former Soviet leader, had an article in Foreign Affairs saying that Russia has become a security state. I mean, the Siloviki, the so-called men of force, Putin's right. entourage of former intelligence people, run the country. So isn't that a real difference between Stalin, at least the Communist Party controlled the country, but now the the intelligence services run the country? Well, the intelligence services, yes, uh, together with, uh, you know, the, the army. I mean, those are the Siloviki that you're talking about. I mean, it's the people with guns and the people with force and the people with arms. I don't think it's exactly a KGB dictatorship. Um, you know, there, there are other, uh, other people that pointed to the sort of fascist um, uh, similarities, um, you know, similarities between fascism, especially Mussolini in some ways, uh, and uh, uh, Putin and his government. And there's a lot of that in it. That is to say this hyper-nationalism, too, that we've seen, the kind of xenophobia. Uh, you know, which was also part, of course, of Stalin's um, uh, way of looking at the world, too. Um, you know, the, the corporatism, as I say, these oligarchs, you know, who are then incorporated uh, into the state and the militarism of um, of the Putin state. So there, you know, P Putin and Putinism is a kind of hybrid. I mean, I wouldn't say it's just, you know, the, the kind of political 
state sort of uh, model. It's not just the fascist model. It's not just the Stalinist model. Um, you know, some of it, too, is the imperial Russian model. I mean, sometimes one thinks Putin thinks of himself as, um, you know, a new czar of Russia. And, uh, you know, he has czarist um, kind of models before his, uh, you know, before before his eyes, one of them being Peter the Great, you know, to create a kind of, um, you know, new powerful Russian presence in Europe, which is what Peter wanted to do and to use the state as the vehicle you know, for ruling then uh, this vast Russia uh, expanse. So, so Putin and Putinism, in other words, I would I would suggest has a lot of unique, has many unique aspects uh, to it um, that incorporate these various models into it. But it does seem somewhat ironic that Putin's ambitions and any. He has made it clear that he thinks the dissolution of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest geostrategic tragedies in history. Here he is launching a war that's his war, and because he runs a kleptocracy, he's hollowed out the military through corruption to the point where, for example, the Prigozhin, his chef, is in charge of procurement, and the soldiers aren't being fed because Prigozhin's stealing about 80% of the money. And, and and the trucks and vehicles are breaking down because they bought cheap Chinese tires. So do you think Putin has any any sense of the disconnect between his grand ambitions and the fact that he runs a criminal state that's a kleptocracy with him at the top regulating the oligarchs and they're just stealing the country blind? Well, I don't, uh, I don't dispute uh, your description of the situation. Uh, and, and as far as I can tell, you know, Putin has no sense of the, um, you know, of the ironies involved in, in, in the, the, the in, in incomprehensible elements that are combined um, in this war uh, in Ukraine. I think it was a terrible mistake uh, in the first place. And it, it was the kind of mistake that came from those sorts of delusions that you're talking about. I mean, the man is deluded in a lot of ways. I mean, he, you know, he's a very smart man. He's a very capable man. He knows a lot, um, but he deluded himself enough to think that, you know, he could uh, invade Ukraine and uh, Kiev would fall and the West wouldn't do anything about it. And, uh, you know, Ukraine would be uh, incorporated into his new vision uh, of uh, the Russian Empire. And, uh, you know, those kinds of delusions are part of his, um, you know, part of his M.O. And it's just not much that you can do about it, meaning you can't point out the realities. And, and, and I, you know, some people say he's not getting the right information, you know, that, he's, that people are hiding what's really going on. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, there's a good old KGB guy and now, F you know, with these kinds of ties with the FSB, I, I suspect he's getting very good information. That's the way he interprets it. You know, that's the problem. And the way he um, uh, then um, uses those interpretations to uh, take actions like uh, this terrible, terrible invasion of Ukraine, which uh, we should recognize is a horrible thing, not just for Ukraine, um, uh, but also for Russia uh, and for the rest of the world. But is there a way to end it, given that Putin appears to be, I mean, for example, on Saturday, the leaders of France and Germany had an 80-minute conversation with him, and they called for an immediate ceasefire and for Russia to withdraw from Ukraine, and none of which Putin agreed with or dismissed outright, and he mostly complained about the Americans arming the Ukrainians and how they're, they're, it's dangerous and it may cross a red line, particularly with this new rocket launch missiles that the U.S. is providing or is in the pipeline, I should say. So I don't see an end to this, do you? I mean, he's not interested in peace, and if he, if he wanted to do a ceasefire, the Ukrainians are nervous about that and skeptical that it will just be a pause in order for him to to rebuild these forces and attack again. So I guess the real question here is, Norman, is there a way to end this war? I honestly don't think so. 
I mean, um, not in the near future. Um, I think both sides, um, uh, both the Russians and the Ukrainians uh, are capable of and um, will continue fighting. I mean, one of the aspects um, of this that I sort of hope will maybe change some of the dynamics of what seems to be going on now, a kind of stalemate in the southeast of the country, although the Russians look like they're um, uh, advancing um, uh, in the Donbass, um, you know, one can hope somehow that the combination of the sanctions and the continuing um, uh, delivery of serious uh, weapons to the Ukrainians, you know, will tire out the Russians before it tires out uh, the Ukrainians. In other words, as long as we can... We can support the Ukrainians in their uh, war efforts as they see it. I mean, it's very important to try to, you know, to try to help the Ukrainians do what they want to do. Uh, and this includes, um, you know, any kind of uh, negotiations or uh, potential, um, you know, uh, exchanges of, um, of territory or that kind of thing. I mean, we want to support the Ukrainians as much as we can. And it's important that we don't get weary of the war. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things that, that, that is easy for us to do, to lose focus. And uh, if we keep the focus up, you know, my hope is that the Russians will be forced into a position, uh, given their difficult economic situation of, um, and, and remember, again, Ukrainians are fighting for their land, they're fighting for their freedom, they're fighting for their sovereignty. Uh, where the Russians are invading uh, uh, essentially a foreign territory, um, which is much harder. Um, and so my hope is that at some point, and it's not going to be, it's not going to be soon. Uh, you know, a year, maybe a couple of years, uh, there will be some kind of uh, ceasefire and then peace negotiations, which offer uh, to the Russians a kind of minimum a minimum gain that they can walk away and say we won but but that's a very difficult thing and it's going to be a hard uh, it's going to be a hard road to get there and we're continuing the conversation with Norman Nymark a professor and the chair of East European History at Stanford University and also a senior fellow of the Institute of International Studies where he has convened the European Forum he's the author of a number of books including Fires of Hatred Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe Genocide, A World History, and Stalin and the Fate of Europe, The Post-War Struggle for Sovereignty. So in terms of the U.S. staying power, it does seem that McConnell and the Republicans, in the Senate at least, have joined with the Democrats, uh, and McConnell actually visited with Zelensky very recently. But the former President Trump, speaking at the NRA convention in Houston on Friday, he called for the U.S. to stop sending money to Ukraine and, in fact, to spend the money on turning our schools into prisons and calling for Americans to have more guns and teachers to be armed. I mean, this sort of isolationism and Trumpism, and after all, Trump does control the Republican Party, do you see that growing? Or do you see, in other words, if it's going to be a long haul, as you just said, and people are going to get weary, will the American people be encouraged by Trump's narrative? Well, it's a, it's a really good question, and it's hard. Uh, it's, it's clearly hard to predict what will happen. But there are a couple of things working, I think, um, in favor of uh, American, continuing American involvement. I mean, one of, I mean, there are many things. Let me, just, let me just rattle off a few that come to mind. Um, you know, one is that um, uh, we need to remember and that the Europeans uh, are really close to Ukraine, right? That a, a tragedy in Ukraine, a, a really terrible thing happening in Ukraine would have its spillover effects in Europe. And in, with those spillover effects, that would involve NATO, that would involve, um, you know, the United States in a, in, a, in a major way. So we need to get in, we need to be involved in part to prevent some of the worst spillover effects uh, happening. And by that, I mean also Russian and, you know, potential aggression in Moldova or the Baltic states or elsewhere uh, in Europe. So that's first of all. Second of all, 
you know, on the question of the Republican Party, you know, Republicans have generally uh, over the years, you know, been in favor, you know, of trying to resist Russian aggression. I mean, this was in the Cold War context initially with Ronald Reagan and others. But, uh, you know, there is a significant part of the Republican Party that understands that America's involvement um, in resisting aggression abroad, in this case, Russia's, uh, is extremely important to the world. So it's it's not, you know, it, it, I would not describe it, you know, maybe I'm being slightly naive, but I don't think uh, Trump controls the Republican Party. I mean, he's clearly uh, has major influence uh, in it. But some of the recent elections, you know, showed some weaknesses and some difficulties that he has among the Republicans. And certainly there, there as you mentioned, uh, Mitch McConnell, and there are other Republicans who have a, a you know, a, who reflect a strong national security uh, background and who are for the United States uh, helping out a country like Ukraine, which is seeking again uh, its freedom. Uh, and to establish, continue its democracy, you know, over the years. So, uh, you know, the, the, there are things that, that augur well. I mean, the last thing I'll mention, uh, and it's worth mentioning, I just saw a piece of uh, Zelensky's speech here at Stanford. I mean, he's giving a series of speeches around the country at various universities. And he remains a, 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 a kind of marvelously attractive figure. You know, a real kind of hero uh, in some ways of, of democratic and, and liberal uh, values of an open society, uh, of democracy itself, and of all of its uh, various uh, components that make us proud to be living in a democracy and happy to be living in a democracy, the rule of law, for example. In any case, Zelensky you know, is fabulously, um, uh, and he, he has wonderful communication skills. And those communication skills and his ability to talk to the Congress, to, you know, the Bundestag, you know, to NATO, to European Union, you know, to university students in the United States, you know, his ability to communicate the needs of Ukraine and the fact that Ukraine is fighting for its own freedom and will not give up, but also for the freedom of the rest of the Europe and in some cases the world. So um, we can't sell him short. He's been really quite effective. And the fact that, you know, Biden brings a, what was it, a $40 billion aid bill, you know, to the Congress is an example of the effectiveness, I think, um, of Zelensky and the Ukrainians in general in communicating what it is they're trying to accomplish and making it clear that these goals uh, are important to Europe, but also to the United States. Well, Putin may be having a hard time militarily, but ever since this war began, the price of oil has shot up and he's still being paid about a billion dollars a day from West Europe and mostly from Germany for the for Russian gas. He's getting a billion dollars a day for India for selling his oil. He seems to have a, a kind of compact with Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi dictator, and Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the Emirates. And some people have pointed out, as Tom Malinowski, now a congressman, former State Department official, that there's an alliance against Biden. The fact that MBS and MBZ won't take his phone calls, they won't help lower the price of gas. You can make the case, and it does seem that way, that there's a sort of de facto alliance between Putin, MBZ, and MBS to get rid of Biden, to stoke inflation, which the, the biggest driver is the rising price of oil. It continues to go up. And they won't budge. And there's no, I just talked to a bunch of specialists on the Middle East, on the Gulf, who just returned from the Gulf. And they all told me that that the word in the Gulf is that MBS and MBZ and Putin want to bring Trump back. So I wouldn't count it out. I mean, you, you're saying, and it's true, he doesn't control the Republican Party, but he does seem to dominate it, uh, or at least he's trying to. Maybe he's losing some of his mojo. But if these other malign actors, and you can have an alliance between a kind of fascist petrostate and a feudal petrostate, I wouldn't count uh, Trump out. 
No, I mean, uh, I think you're right, uh, you know, to, to put up the warning flag. And um, and there are many other reasons not to, to count Trump out, as you put it. I, I wouldn't do that in the least. I'm just saying I think the other forces at work are more powerful. I mean, think about it. Um, and Europe, you know, is united, right, in this. I mean, there, there are a few weak points here and there. But on the whole, uh, Europeans have, sh- have shown remarkable uh, ability uh, you know, to mobilize themselves on behalf uh, of Ukraine. Uh, I was in Germany, actually, at the end of February and quite struck. And remember, Germany is, I mean, Germany's Germany. It's not, you know, it's not a Gulf state. It's, it's a, it has tremendous resources and enormous ability to deliver those resources to Ukraine, which is pretty close. And, um, you know, uh, there have been some problems with the Germans recently in terms of actual delivery of their of their of their promises for uh, military help uh, to Ukraine. But they're they are coming through. And, um, you know, if this conflict continues, I would predict that they would be even more uh, ready, uh, you know, to deliver, Um, you know, the same thing with NATO. I mean, NATO has shown. Um, a lot of resilience and, uh, and, and an ability, you know, to deliver uh, uh, weapons, but also, um, you know, to inv- get themselves involved in training and the whole intelligence game uh, that helps the Ukrainians enormously. Um, so, um, you know, it, what you're arguing is that there are counterweights, you know, to the economic argument of, of Russia getting weaker. But I would suggest to you that the Europeans will mobilize, you know, uh, increasingly uh, if the Russians continue uh, to pound uh, the Ukrainians uh, as they uh, are. So, so there are a lot of reasons to think, you know, that the combination of the power and I wanted to mention, and you clearly know this as well, that Finland and Sweden are now about to join, you know, the NATO alliance. And which is which is a huge blow to Russia. I mean, they're kind of brushing it off and, you know, mixing kind of threats with, well, who cares? But but the point of fact is that um, it, it's an enormous blow. There's a huge, uh, long border, Finnish border, you know, with Russia that makes Russia even more vulnerable, uh, you know, to NATO, um, to NATO potential uh, you know, c- counterattacks or or responses to uh, Russian aggression. So I I don't see it quite the same way. It is true that that Putin and the Russians have been very inventive in finding ways. You didn't mention China, but that's of course another uh, important factor in this all. But they've been very c- clever at finding ways. And India, which you did mention, very clever at finding ways, you know, to sell their oil and to, um, uh, you know, uh, find find partners in a world that is generally completely hostile to them. And, um, uh, you know, they're going to find partners here and there. But on the whole, um, I think the Ukrainians and the West, you know, have done an excellent job in making this uh, the kind of struggle uh, you know, that um, can unite the rest of the world in some ways uh, against the Russians. I mean, they, you know, that they have invaded a sovereign country. Um, and not only have they invaded it to go back to our, you know, original uh, discussion, uh, you know, they are um, uh, potentially carrying out genocide in that country. And so, um, I, th- I think the, um, you know, I think the stars are aligned well for Ukraine and the stars are not aligned well for Russia. And so as time goes on, I think the Russians will be the ones, you know, who will have to and will, in some senses, say uncle first. Right. And 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 kind of give in. Um, and who knows, along that way, Putin might be. Uh, you know, might be removed. We don't know. It's unlikely. But still, um, you know, th- that that may happen. So just in closing then, Norman, you don't see, for example, Hungary and Turkey are, are acting as kind of spoilers. Hungary doesn't want, is vetoing the EU's boycott of Russian oil and 
Erdogan in Turkey is vetoing the unanimity of NATO in allowing Sweden and Finland into the alliance. So are you concerned about them as spoilers or do you think that'll, that'll be overcome? I think that uh, both both things. I mean, I am concerned about them as spoilers, and it says something about both countries uh, that they're um, uh, acting as spoilers in their own ways. Um, and I'm not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I also think that this, the, they the, both, both cases that will be overcome. I mean, their interests, you know, again, lie heavily uh, with Europe and in the case of Turkey, certainly with Ukraine. And, um, you know, their their interests are such that I think eventually, yeah, within within a short period of time, actually, they will uh, they will conform or at least uh, sit out any the, the NATO, you know, the NATO ascension of, uh, of Sweden uh, and Finland and will, you know, if they don't go along with the oil embargo, in the case of the Hungarians, then they will be they will be allowed to somehow sit it out, and the rest will embargo the Russians. So I th- I think it's coming, and I you know once again uh, if you um, this is on the you know on the television sets and the front pages of Europeans in some ways m- much more than it is in the United States, because as I mentioned you know they're close by and they you know they've already got Ukrainians coming by the millions to Europe, and they don't want the whole Ukrainian forty million. <laughs> more to come, right? In other words, um, there could be a terrible, uh, terrible uh, refugee crisis if somehow the Russians were to win. I mean, it would be a horrible thing. So I think the the Europeans uh, uh, understand that for their own interests and for the interests of their democracies and for the interests of, um, you know, the, the, the world community. I mean, this business of invading to alter borders, everybody understands, you know, is not acceptable. And uh, is essentially Hitlerian. I mean, we didn't talk about the Hitler model, but there's something there, too, where you you threaten, invade and also diminish the people that you're invading. I mean, in the case of uh, in the case of Putin, where he sort of diminishes who the Ukrainians are and and tells them who they are, that they're not allowed to you know, develop their own sense of their own identity. You know, is something that uh, Hitler did, too. And uh, I mean, it's clear the lessons uh, of the 1930s in this case, um, you know, where you, you cannot uh, you cannot accept that kind of aggression. So um, otherwise you're 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 susceptible to it yourself. And NATO understands that. And so I think um, no, I think I, I think in the end, the Ukrainians are if not going to win, you know, win, meaning beat the Russians and and send them fleeing from Ukrainian territory. Um, I think they will be in the stronger in the stronger chair at the bargaining table. Well, Nolan Nymak, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, I appreciate the conversation. Thanks for the good questions. And again, I've been speaking with Norman Nymark, who is a professor and the chair of East European History at Stanford University and also a senior fellow of the Institute for International Studies, where he has convened the European Forum. He's the author of a number of books, including Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe, Genocide, A World History, and Stalin and the Fate of Europe, The Post-War Struggle for Sovereignty. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived
next door in 305. 